Welcome to World Policy on Air, a weekly podcast from the pages and website of World Policy Journal, published by the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. I'm David Alpern. In this week's program, posted December 2nd, 2016, we talk with Latin America expert Lisa Weinman about her current post on Cuba after Castro, the impact of his death on the island's politics, economy, relations with Washington, and the wider world. We'll also point out top features in the WPJ Fall issue, cover theme, History's Ghosts. But first, some timely insights from Washington with Paul Brandis, who runs the West Wing Reports News Service. Well, something to consider about the incoming administration. None of the top three people in the West Wing will have any government experience. We're talking about the president-elect himself, of course, his chief of staff, Reince Priebus, and his top advisor, Steve Bannon. The significance of having so little experience, well, that remains to be seen. It does suggest, however, that the new president and his two top men could lean heavily on the right-wing security advisors that have been hired. National Security Advisor Mike Flynn, for example, who calls Islamic extremism an existential threat to America. And Mike Pompeo, the likely CIA chief who advocates waterboarding and perhaps other forms of torture. The fact that they have more government experience than the president-elect who hired them suggests their influence in the West Wing could be even greater. Stay tuned. President-elect, meantime, intends to pull out or at a minimum renegotiate the Trans-Pacific Partnership, that, of course, the trade pact with Asia. But here's where a pullout could hurt the U.S. and possibly cost American jobs. Right now, TPP excludes China, but now China is talking about forming its own Pacific trade pact, and that could leave America on the outside looking in. President Obama warned that a retreat on TPP could give an opening to China to write the rules and gain an upper hand. There are signs that this could, in fact, happen. Again, stay tuned. And speaking of Asia, the U.N. has imposed new sanctions on North Korea, punishment, it says, for its continued nuclear program. The sanctions aim to cut North Korea's exports and thus badly needed revenue. The question, will China, which has always seen the need to prop up North Korea, continue to buy goods from Pyongyang? For World Policy On Air, I'm Paul Brandis at the White House. You're listening to World Policy On Air. Now this. Querido pueblo de Cuba, con profundo dolor, comparezco para informar a nuestro pueblo, a los amigos de nuestra América y del mundo, que hoy, 25 de noviembre del 2016, a las 10 y 29 horas de la noche, falleció el comandante en jefe de la Revolución Cubana, Fidel Castro Ruz. 
Cuba's President Raul Castro announced the death of his far more famous predecessor and revolutionary firebrand brother Fidel at age 90 late last week, triggering both sadness and joy among Cubans, depending on their location, geographic and ideologic. There was public mourning across the island for its iconic communist leader, of course, but also private celebration there and in many immigrant little Havanas around the world that an often brutal dictator was dead at last. An evolving Cuba under Raul has been preparing for ailing Fidel's farewell for some time, notes World Policy Senior Fellow Lisa Weinman, founder-director of Americans for Humanitarian Trade with Cuba. But she sees the symbolism of his death as potent nonetheless, especially given tough talk from U.S. President-elect Donald Trump. Weinman considers further changes in Cuba after Castro and in its relations with Washington and the wider world in a new post for the World Policy blog. And we discussed it on deadline for this podcast. Lisa Weinman, welcome to World Policy on Air. Thank you for having me, David. What do you see as the most important aspects of Cuba's evolution, economic and political, under Raul Castro? Well, certainly he's a very different personality from Fidel Castro in that he's um, more committed to the idea of market reforms and to evolving Cuba into a mixed market economy. Um, he's also liberalized somewhat politically because he's allowed Cubans to freely leave the island, which had, until he came into power, been prohibited largely. Um, and he's expanded private enterprise greatly in Cuba while reducing um, the roles of state employees, making state enterprises, which still consume the lion's share of the Cuban economy, into leaner, uh, more competitive machinery. Do you see him feeling free to go further with reform now that Fidel is gone, or, uh, as with many uh, situations like this, more concerned about maintaining control and stability? Talk about his remarks to the Communist Party Congress in April. Well, the Communist Party Congress in April was very significant because um, it was, for the first time, an evaluation of the socialist model up to that point. Um, none of these Congress, uh, Congresses had ever really dealt with that before. It was just assumed that the revolutionary structure was, was what it is, and the kinds of deep questioning regarding market reforms had been approached but not really dealt with to the degree that they occurred in April. And I think a lot of that did have to do with um, Raul Castro being in power. Now, there was another party Congress in 2011 where there was an, about, I think there was some over 300 different um, what they call updatings to the Cuban economy had been announced. And by the Cuban government's own reckoning, about 20% of those or so have actually been enacted. Um, because, of course, Decisions or agreements that are made in the Congress of, of the party do not always translate into action by the National Assembly and revisions to the Cuban Constitution. That's something that I think Americans tend to forget. They think that everything in Cuba is done by executive fiat when, in fact, in my experience over 20 years in the country, I've, I've seen actually a very robust debate that occurs around even the most minor changes, which tend to really slow down the kinds of advances um, people in the United States might 
might like to see. But certainly if that Congress reforms like um, putting a cap on the age of um, those who hold public office to 60, um, saying that anybody over 70 should retire um, from the party and from public service to make more room for the younger generation, appointing people to the um, the Politburo, which is the central uh, decision-making body within the Congress um, and the Communist Party, uh, five new members, none of whom have ties to the military, three of which are women, um, one of whom is uh, very involved in digital technology and Internet advances that are largely being accomplished today by China in Cuba um, with Chinese foreign investment. So there is a lot going on there and a lot of um, discussion that Raul is helping to promote. Say more about promises of a pending new conceptualization of the whole socialist economy. Well, certainly, you know, when Raul came in to make these changes, he opened space and he encouraged people to speak their minds. Um, and again, the state-run media has always been reluctant to go too far in terms of criticism of the Cuban government, but Raul had actually encouraged people to speak out because he said the only way that we're going to be able to withstand um, the future onslaughts, uh, the loss of partnership with Venezuela, which he acknowledged was going to be a very difficult transition for Cuba, um, and the uh, increasing partnership and dialogue with the United States, the only way he said Cuba would be able to really, you know, weather these challenges was through national dialogue and for, by more young people becoming involved. So, you know, he's created space for uh, religious groups in Cuba and more political dialogue, although, again, it's probably not as much as some people had hoped, but clearly we see um, real activity in, in those spheres. If Raul keeps his promise to step down in 2018, what do we know about the policies or propensities of the man most likely to succeed him and the, the hardcore of other major leaders? Well, you know, the, the truth is is that there's many, many different opinions within the governing body in Cuba. Um, and the appointment of the successor um, who will still again have to be vetted in a very thorough national manner is uh, Miguel Diaz Canal, who has been floated for the past couple of years as a likely successor. He uh, is a former minister of education. He's a very um, modest figure, although he spent a lot of time out uh, working in different provinces um, around Cuba, so he has had a, a certain national vetting, and people do seem to like him, both in the, the military structure as well as in the different provincial capitals. So he seems as if he has a lot of um, support domestically, and as always with the Cuban government, there's been a very measured, methodical approach to introducing his name and his being to the masses, if you will. Um, there's been a vetting that will continue to go on over the next year or so until uh, the resignation um, and the, what will be for, for all intents and purposes, an interesting um, electoral uh, exercise 
uh, in terms of the Cuban National Assembly, the Communist Party, and the different structures in Cuba to see if there's any dark horses that come out uh, beyond the person that the, the party and, and the, the existing structure have seemed to already have anointed. I know that the, uh, there was some speculation about Raul Castro's children stepping in. His son um, is a powerful figure who has uh, done a lot of work internationally. Um, but I would suspect that it will not be a member of uh, well, the person who takes uh, the reins of Cuba following Raul Castro, in my opinion, most certainly will not have the Castro name. And do you think he will have the loyalty of the, the second tier of leaders, the people who have been through the hardest times uh, of the embargo? Um, will they be prepared to stand with him in the direction that he leads? Well, a lot remains to be seen in the in the year or so ahead um, before all this sort of comes to fruition, and a lot will, of course, depend on the um, attitude that the United States uh, government uh, assumes moving forward, because as we've seen time and again, when um, U.S. policy tends to hunker down, um, the hardliners within the Cuban government tend to be able to retract any liberalizations that have occurred. And it's, it's quite clear that... Um, I think he, he will have the backing of the institutional framework of the, in Cuba um, and that they will proceed very cautiously uh, and that he, he will enjoy um, a different kind of power than we've seen with the Castro brothers in the past, uh, a definitely a more, more pluralistic manifestation. I think Diaz-Canal will, will enjoy a different kind of rule than we've seen um, from the Cuban leaders of, of the past. What about the new leadership's fiscal sophistication, international savvy, and, and actual connections in an age of growing globalization that's, as you've suggested, already undermined the island's most important post-Soviet financial support of Venezuela? I really feel very confident about Cuba's ability to negotiate on the national stage. They've always had um, a very high level of interaction at different international bodies, certainly at the United Nations. Uh, they've been able to achieve a leadership role there. They're known as tough negotiators. I think the, the U.S. team under Obama can attest to that. They're they are uh, largely internationally trained. They don't forget, even though the United States maintains an economic embargo on Cuba, the whole rest of the world has, has had relationships with them, and their whole internationalist bent um, has been well known. So the people that I've uh, dealt with over the years in Cuba and the people that um, friends and, and business associates are dealing with in Cuba today are really savvy. They tend to be younger. They tend to be internationally trained. And I think uh, they represent uh, a lot of hope for the future. Beyond the personalities and political agendas, talk about the institutions that Cubans may feel will support stability in, uh, in the passing of First Fidel and then uh, very, very soon thereafter, Raul. Well, certainly the central authority of the Cuban Communist Party will remain, although, as I say, there's a lot of currents within the party, and even though it is a single party, um, one can say there are many uh, smaller parties folded within it. Um, so that will remain a very um, influential institution moving forward, for sure. 
Um, but the other um, the organizations of the masses, the young communists, the, um, the Workers' Party, um, the, especially uh, the Federation of Women, many Cubans pertain to these groups, um, and they, they have uh, social structures within them that, that really reach down to the grassroots level. Um, the institutions uh, that I've just mentioned are very strong to this day in Cuba, and people see them as as ways of getting ahead um, in the Cuban government. So for people who choose to remain in Cuba um, and be involved in the national project, they still represent a very viable um, pathway to, to achieve power and relevance within the system. Um, and unfortunately, the people who are most capable who might um, be able to create new pathways and new types of organizations in Cuba often leave the country. And it's even, um, you know, the, of course there's been a brain drain in Cuba in recent years since the liberalization of travel. Um, many uh, very well-trained professionals have, have left the country um, because they, they're not willing to stay and, and work within those existing structures. But for those who do, um, I think they're remaking Cuba from within. Um, and the exodus and immigration has been a real um, gift to the Cuban authorities who, who want to keep things the way they are. <laughs> what about the excess of bureaucratic red tape and risk aversion one reads about, creating barriers to outside investment and international partnerships that could really spur the island's economy as they seek uh, corporate profit? Well, there are a lot of barriers and there's a, little, a lot of mistrust and there's, uh, I don't really see a lot of those barriers coming down, although um, as this, the economic situation worsens with the departure of uh, Venezuela's support, obviously you're going to see Cuba reaching out more and make, tweaking those changes um, to the degree they have to. Um, but I, I would say that, you know, the... Cubans in general are not motivated by the profit motive the way people you see here are. They want to be profitable, but they have larger interests in mind as a society. So it's not, it's not a straight path for those of us who are accustomed to working within a system where people, you, know, you follow the money and the profits are the, the guiding force. It's, it's jarring to work with Cuba because that's not always the case. I mean, there's a, a different ethos that tends to determine how decisions are made, so it can be confusing um, for the outsider. But I do think that Cuba, uh, for instance, has been trying to um, streamline procedures. For instance, with the Mariel um, Business Development District, for instance, they, they've opened basically a free trade zone within Cuba, and they're testing some of these concepts sort of in a safe space space that way. Um, and there have been any number of international partners that have set up shop there, including um, one American uh, firm who's gone in and, and because they produce agricultural products, they've been able to start working within Cuba. And I think um, there's enough long-term possibility there in people's minds that they're willing to withstand the short-term difficulties of, of actually getting a foothold in Cuba. I was also interested by the influence you see coming from a strong local cooperative movement in Cuba. Yes, there's a, re there's a lot of strong connections um, between cooperative movement in the United States and in Cuba and, and, and internationally, and it's a model that, that uh, Raul Castro especially has been promulgating. Um, 
a way of expanding the private sector and continue, continuing to expand it while forging a slightly different um, model that respects more the, the principles of the revolution. So we see the cooperative sector. I don't have any firm numbers um, in front of me, but there's definitely been a, a real growth, and I, I would expect to see a lot of continued growth in that sector with international support. So now we have to address the elephant in the room, which is uh, symbolic uh, in two ways, because we're talking about Washington policy towards Cuba under President Trump. Uh, given both his tough campaign rhetoric, but also his love of deal making and pressures one can predict from U.S. business uh, really salivating to mine the market there. What happens if the long running U.S. Uh, straitjacket is further eased or retightened? Give us both scenarios. Yeah. Well, really, when you look at any kind of tightening to the embargo, it just seems like it would, you know, be so utterly um, unproductive for any new administration. There's uh, the stated goals of opening um, space for private enterprise and market reforms are, in fact, already occurring. Um, and I think the conventional wisdom out there is that a any kind of tightening or any kind of putting the screws to the Cuban government so that they will accelerate will have precisely the opposite impact and really not lead to um, any relief for the Cuban people. So I would say that although there's a lot of um, – there's still a lot of that uh, desire in the Cuban-American, um, let's say, right-wing community to punish – um, the Castro government, I think those are really just echoes of the past, and I don't see them gaining any real footholds. Um, it would probably be more likely that the current policy will sort of eke along and there won't be any real changes from a Trump administration, and at least in the short term. But um, if, in fact, you know, you've got a Republican Congress, and I must say that I've seen more changes under Republican um, leadership, <laughs> the, the lifting of the restrictions um, on, on food sales and others came largely from Republicans in Congress, um, free business types who, who really understand the value of those business relationships and, and creating change in Cuba and opportunities for the Cuban people. I think that, you know, it, it might run against conventional wisdom, but... In my view, if the embargo was to end, then you would see a lot more pressure on the Cuban government to react um, to what would definitely be an, an onslaught of interest. Um, and so that might be the most revolutionary uh, way that Trump could deal with Cuba would be to, to try to um, actually lead an effort to end the embargo because it's, it's there, it's strong, it's a, it's a, a very um, depressing factor on the Cuban economy. It always has been. It's yielded zero political results. In fact, it's buttressed the, uh, the old leadership for 60 years almost. So one would say that the, the lifting of the embargo could have really an incredible impact on Cuba, although to be sure the Cuban government will be the ones to slow it down. Um, but then they'll be in that position of closing the door, not, not us. Whatever Washington may do, in what areas of development do you think Cuba should be directing most resources from, that, from this point on? Well, I think Cuba will continue to, de to devote the, the bulk of their resources to the two areas that they always have, um, which are education and health care. Um, I think that Cubans understand that those are the two aspects of the Cuban Revolution that are most um, treasured by the Cuban people who remain in Cuba. Um, they're very important um, 
human rights that they feel they have worked very, very hard to achieve. Even if it's not a perfect system, those are rights that are guaranteed under the Cuban Constitution along with gender equality rights, things that really seem progressive to us in the United States. And the Cuban people aren't going to be willing to let go of those too easily. So I would say that the you'll see always continued investment in education and in health care in Cuba, um, although the Cubans will be scrambling to find ways to support those, those two institutions. Um, and they will do so largely through foreign investment and um, expanding the areas of tourism and their biotechnology and medical services industry. Um, they'll have to raise wages even more than has already been done for Cuban doctors and medical professionals to um, induce them to stay in Cuba and not leave for other countries, as, as has been the trend in the past couple of years. Um, so, you know, entertainment and uh, the film industry and entertainment industry is also growing, and there's a lot of international partnerships happening in Cuba. Um, there's just a lot of interest in Cuba in general, and I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that Cuba is a test society. Um, and, you know, it might not be such a bad thing to let them for once in their lives, um, without the noose of the embargo around their neck, see what they could accomplish um, in areas that up to this point have, have really evaded success even in our own country. So, you know, my, my sort of message to Donald Trump would be to, um, to take away the embargo, to work with the Congress to remove the 60-year-old embargo, and see, let's see what happens. Let's be bold. Let's be brave. Um, let's see what might, what might occur um, in Cuban society if we were to step out and let them take care of themselves. Lisa Weinman, thank you. Thank you so much, David. It's a pleasure to talk to you. World Policy Institute senior fellow Lisa Weinman is an expert on Latin American political economy with a longtime special interest in embargoes and U.S. policy. From 1998 to 2010, she directed the WPI Cuba Project, a national educational program on the socioeconomic impact of U.S. policy toward Cuba on U.S. national interests, Cuban Americans, and Cuba itself. Also founder, director of Americans for Humanitarian Trade with Cuba, she wrote the current post on Cuba after Castro for the World Policy website blog. Featured in the World Policy Journal fall issue, History's Ghosts, you'll find articles on what lessons from history keep being forgotten, on silencing the echoes of Tiananmen, and on the decline of sovereignty in the Arab world by award-winning Beirut-based columnist and commentator Rami G. Khoury. And listen next week when our podcast will consider a new rethinking of Hong Kong's struggle for self-determination. World Policy on Air is a production of World Policy Journal at the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. Editor Christopher Shea, Managing Editor Yaffa Frederick, Podcast Producer Matthew DeMello. I'm David Alpern.